so good to be with you. Welcome to those of you who are in the room. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online this morning. It's great to have you. Well, as Pastor Dave said, we are jumping back into the second week of our series in Revelation, the seven words to the churches. And we're up to week two, so I get the second church. But before we dive into that, I just need to, um, well, I don't need to, I want to, tell you about the book that was most helpful to me as I wrestled with Revelation. Sorry, is that a problem? No, good. Uh, this book is by two men, uh, Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett. Um, you can get it in paperback, you can get it on Audible. It's not a commentary as such, not a verse-by-verse -verse description of what's happening. Rather, it's an overview and a bit of an evaluation of past ways we've looked at the book of Revelation and also too presents a different way of looking at it as a cosmic battle between good and evil. And I found it, it actually took away some of the dauntedness, some of the weirdness, and it just made it far more easily for me, easier for me to grapple with the book of Revelation. I really appreciated the way they presented. Um, also, too, before we get going, I don't know that Steve mentioned last week. Steve did a good job, didn't he? Yeah. Great job, Steve, kicking us off last week. And he um, gave us a great start to the series, but he has also very kindly and generously put together some notes. And these notes are a little bit of an overview of Revelation, a bit of a, an outline. And on the back of those at the end, he's also got some more resources that you might find helpful. So if you're interested in finding out more about the book of Revelation or you'd like to go further, um, there's some great things in the back of that. Now, those notes are on the website. They're linked. Jenny has very kindly linked them to the sermon. If you go to downloading or listening to the sermons, they're also in the um, So they're on twice. So you'll find them pretty easily. If you can't find them and you want them printed, um, grab a staff member and we'll print them for you. But they're really helpful. So th that was the first thing I wanted to get out of the way. The second thing, which is a bit of an intro, recently I heard Pastor Matt Johnston say something in a conversation that made my ears prick up because he said it a few times. He said, 100%. He was agreeing with me, 100%. And I was very emphatic, 100%. Now, what made my ears prick up was... He didn't say 100% or 100%. He just said 100%. I thought, oh, that's a bit unique. And it was a few days later, I was talking to Pastor AJ Johnston, Andrew Johnston, and I heard 100%. And I went, hmm. <laughs> and we kept talking, and he was, I must have been saying great things because they're both agreeing with me. And he said it again, he said 100%. And I'm like, hmm, that's fascinating. They obviously spent some time together. Language is catchy. Language is our framework for what we do and how we describe our life and our experiences. When we come to the book of Revelation, we often see the language as really weird. And some of it is. But don't let the weirdness put you off. What we actually find in the book of Revelation is the entire Bible summed up in one book. But if we could get the um, rainbow slide up, that'd be really great. Thank you. The book of Revelation, has anyone seen this image before? It's all the links between the chapters of the Bible. So the bars down the bottom underneath the line, the light grey and the dark grey are the different books of the Bible, different chapters. And then all the links are where the Bible cross-references itself. That's incredible, isn't it? That is absolutely mind-boggling. The book of Revelation references or um, 
alludes to more than any other book of the Bible, other places of the Bible. It refers to, um, so John uses language and ideas out of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. He refers to a lot of the gospel language is used in there. And Paul's letters to the, um, across the globe, so Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, they're all referenced in the book of Revelation. So even though you get to the book of Revelation and think, oh, it's all new, it's actually not. It's not all new. It's the same story. It's the same story from the start to the end summed up for us. I don't know if the grand final has already been referenced, but one, maybe not, why that giggle? I was on the edge of my seat and I'm not even a footy fan. But one of the best ways of, of thinking about the book of Revelation that was described to me was it's like watching a match of footy. But rather than sitting in the stand and having one perspective, it's like you're at home on your couch and you've got all the different camera angles showing you the same game, but from different perspectives. So even though the book of Revelation is just two visions, we get lots of different looks at it. Make sense? Yes. So that was helpful to me. But the book of Revelation is absolutely amazing. It is like no other. It's prophecy and prose and poetry. There's descriptions of John's two visions. And it's a letter all rolled into one. But it's not just one letter to one church. It's seven short letters to the churches that would all have read the same the entirety of it. So even though we've got today this short letter to Smyrna, all the churches would have read the whole book. It might have been even performed. And they all got the overall. So right at the end, we, hear, we get the, the verse, the same thing that happens all the way through. Those who have ears, let them hear what is said to the churches. When we approach Revelation, it's also really helpful to realise it wasn't written to us. Just as much as Paul's other letter, or Paul's letters are written to the Galatians or to the Colossians or to the Philippians, and they're for us, the book of Revelation was written to those churches that were real churches in time and place and history, but it's for us. So there's going to be truth eternal for us to take and apply to us. Is everyone on the page? Yes, we're all, all agreeing. Nice to see you're all awake after a change of time with daylight savings. Are we expecting people to rock up in an hour? No, it looks like you're all here. You're doing well. John's words to us in the book of Revelation, as much as he's describing his visions, there is an overarching theme of encouragement. He's egging us on. Follow Jesus. Now you're going to hear some of these words and ideas and phrases referenced throughout the Bible. You will find your life when you lose it. You will pick up your cross and die. You will resist evil by turning the other cheek. You will love your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, blessing those who curse you. You will fight with the weapons of the spirit. You will use your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, and your faithfulness to confound those who oppose you. You will live in the perfect love that casts out fear. You will be a witness to Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb who was slain and is now alive by the work you do. You will trust in a good, good God, a sovereign king, even in the midst of your suffering. We are encouraged to live as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, not of Rome. And it's truly an upside-down kingdom. These people knew what it was to live under Roman rule. And John is saying, but you live under the rule of Christ. The first will be last. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of Christ. Their reward in heaven is great. We are encouraged to see the entire story and our part in it through the lens of Christ's victory. But his victory came through his death and resurrection. This morning as we open up the Bible and look at the few verses that are written to Smyrna, we're going to see that Jesus wants them to see themselves and all that's going on around them through his death and resurrection because they're about to face their own. If you have your Bible or device with you, would you turn to Revelation chapter 2 with me? We will start in verse 8 in just a second. But while you're turning there, if you don't have it, it will be on the screens in just a second. Sorry, we've skipped ahead. Wait, wait, wait. We're going to, just before, we're going to pull up Steve's outline because it was so good. This is the outline of the letter. Thank you. Get it up? Yeah. So this is the same outline that all the letters follow, but ours doesn't have a complaint in it this morning. So every church has got this same practical outline. We don't have a complaint, and I think that's beautiful. This church is under heavy persecution, and, and Jesus doesn't hold anything against them. He just says, hang on. So I've entitled this morning's message, Dear Smyrna, Hold On, Love Jesus. Yep, got it? Okay. So now before we do that, I want to pull up the location Thank you. Now, Steve also graciously gave us this slide. As we move through the series, it's helpful to get an idea of where these churches were. Now, Smyrna is about 65 kilometres north of Ephesus. It was also a very important seaport. I was fascinated to know that they moved up the coast to Smyrna as Ephesus was logged very heavily. The seaport, the um, erosion around the banks started to cave the banks in and it wasn't as useful a port and they moved up towards Smyrna. It was under Roman rule by a man named Domitian. It was a very beautiful city and it was uh, politically aligned with Rome. And because of that, the Jews in the city had been granted special favour. It was called a free city and they were free to practice um, their Jewish history and religious practices, even though they were uh, under Roman rule. And that was unusual. But it was also the epicentre of emperor worship. Now, what happened for this was as much participating in this uh, emperor worship was as much a statement around political allegiance as it was around spiritual or religious allegiance. And the ceremony included or involved taking a pinch of incense and burning it and stating out loud, Caesar is Lord. Now, every Roman citizen was required to do this. Some of the Jews voluntarily chose to participate because it gave them access to a whole lot of other things that were advantageous. So refusing to do this, you were put in jail, which eventually led to execution. And um, yes, so as much as it was stating that they were politically aligned to Rome, there was a spiritual part to this. It is devil or Satan or um, demon worship. But because of this overt support by Rome, the Jews had been granted this special exemption. And because of that, they were hard-pressed to put up with the Christians who were bucking the system. The Christians were refusing to say Caesar is Lord. And you can understand that because Romans 10 verse 9 would remind us that we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's how we are saved. So stating that Caesar in Lord is Lord is blasphemy. Now, uh, oh, I've just... No, that's okay. I think I'll jump in here and say this bit. The Jews um, were having a problem with this. Apart from the fact that they wanted to keep Rome on side, they... Oh, actually, I won't jump in yet. <laughs> Sorry, just hang on. I'm going to wait and say that in a minute. I think it'll fit better in a minute. Okay, let's jump in. If you've got your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 8. Let's do that. Okay, we ready? It's on. Thank you. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And we're going to pause there and just unpack that verse a little bit. Now, Steve mentioned the difficulty with the phrase and to the angel of the church. And he gave us two ideas of what it could possibly mean. And I'm going to suggest a third this morning and then explain why I think the third's most helpful. So the first was that it was written to angelic beings who were the guardian angels of the church. The problem I have with that is why would John write to angels? And it wasn't actually angels reading out those letters. So it just seems a little bit too far-fetched. The second option was that it was the people carrying the letter to the churches because angel and messenger are the same root word. So that could be it. But again, why would John be writing to them and not to the church itself? So those people that were delivering the message weren't necessarily a part of the church they were taking the message to. The third option that I think sits really well in here is that it's actually the leader of the church. The angel of the church is actually the leader or the oversight of the church. And the reason I think that is because that person operated as God's messenger to their church, to their congregation. But I actually think if we head back into chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 20, both mention that Christ holds those angels of the churches in his right hand. So if we could get chapter 1, verse 20 up, that would be really good. So this says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So if the leader of the church functions as a messenger for God, delivering God's word to their congregation, then this fits with them being the stars held in Jesus' right hand. The Lord himself upholds, protects, and guides the leaders of his church with his strength and his wisdom. Now, one of the reasons I really like this option, and again, none of them are hard and fast, and you are free to go and research and pick your own. This is just a theory. But the reason I like it, because the man who was the leader of the church in Smyrna at this time was a man named Polycarp. And his life and his testimony bears witness to the fact that Christ truly was upholding him with his right hand. If we could get Polycarp up, that would be great. Now, Polycarp was known as the Bishop of Smyrna, and he was a disciple of John. He was probably the last person alive to have known the disciples en masse personally. And he was in his 80s, apparently about 86 when he was martyred, for refusing to say that Caesar is Lord. Records of his death or his execution were made widely known to the churches of the time, and the I won't describe how he died because it's pretty gruesome and I know we've got kids in the room. But what is so remarkable is his attitude. His attitude of love towards those who were calling for his execution and his attitude of love towards those who carried it out. 
His lack of fear and his faithfulness to Christ were the catalyst for the faith spreading rapidly after his death. He reportedly invited the soldiers who'd come to collect him to take him off to die. He reportedly invited them into his home. He sat them down and fed them a meal. He was so gracious, his demeanour was so peaceful, and it was so disconcerting to those who were about to put him to death that many of them tried to help him avoid it. They tried to water down what was required. They tried to do all these things to let him off the hook, and he wasn't willing to do it. He was not willing to say, Caesar is Lord. Just before he died, he spoke of having no fear of the first death. And his regret for those around him who were more worried about the first death than they were about the second death. And we will get to that in a minute. I really think God did hold Polycarp in his hand. But let's head back to verse 8. So the next phrase in that verse is, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Jesus chose a description of himself for each church. They were different. Jesus chose this one for the church in Smyrna. Jesus also describes himself this way back in chapter 1 in verses 17 and 18. But what a beautiful description to send to the church who was being persecuted. They were facing death. But this is a certain reminder that the one caring for them, the one they belonged to, is the one who always has been and always will be. No matter what it looks like, he holds all the power. Not Rome, not Domitian, not soldiers. Christ holds the power. He is Lord even of death. But to be reminded that Jesus died and rose again, no matter how or when they are to die, he promises that they too will rise again, to be fully alive with him forever. Jesus is focusing their attention on him. Back in chapter 1, he's saying, he says, look now, when he describes himself as the first and the last who was dead and is alive. Look now. I want you to see everything else through me. Look at me. He's saying, look at me. As you face this situation, I want you to see everything else through me. I have already won, he says. You will too. Death is not the end of our story. Which leads us to verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Two of the most powerful words we can ever hear are, I know. I know. Jesus says it here twice. I know. I know what you are going through. This is not a God who is far removed and far distant away. He is a God who is with, a God who is present. He knows. We can't truly say that to each other because we don't really know what somebody else is going through. Jesus does. There is nothing we could experience here on earth that he hasn't. Our suffering, our pain, our betrayals. Our f he knows. He knows. He knew their afflictions and he knows ours. He knew their poverty and their loss of reputation. And he will know ours. He's the only one who truly knows us, who knows our hearts and our brokenness and our suffering. Choosing to abstain from emperor worship, which brought the threat of death, was also accompanied by uh, exclusion in the marketplace. There were economic sanctions. It was hard to buy, trade and sell 
if you were not willing to say Caesar is Lord. They were poor and they were suffering. Poverty, it's not fun. But Jesus is reminding them that they are rich in what truly matters. They have him and every heavenly blessing is theirs. Their inheritance is waiting for them where it cannot perish, spoil or fade. They have treasure in heaven. The link of what the, the, between the thoughts of what a true Jew is, slander and Satan, aren't necessarily immediately clear to us, but the link is there. So another way of translating Satan is slanderer or the accuser. They're, those Jews, this is where I was heading before, but I jumped ahead. Those Jews who were inciting this persecution, they were doing it partly because they saw the Christians as heretics. And yet Jesus is pointing us and pointing out to them that it is Satan behind it all. It's not the Jews they need to hate. A true Jew is one who follows God inwardly and outwardly. Circumcision of the heart was just as important as circumcision of the body. Romans 2 tells us this, but it also tells us that God will judge those who criticise others for doing the same sin that they themselves are doing. It is so incredibly ironic that as the Jews were calling them heretics, calling the Christians heretics, they were denying the actual true Messiah. They were practicing heresy. They just couldn't see it. They were not the enemy. The idea that Satan is, is behind the face of persecution is followed up in the next two verses. Let's read them together. We get them up. Starting in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. It was people carrying out the evil actions. Satan didn't pick them up and put them in jail. People did. But those people are not our enemies. We can continue to love them. We can pray for them. We can bless them. We can serve them. And our love for them displays the certainty of our victory. But what do we do with that phrase? You will suffer persecution for 10 days. That number 10 wasn't literal. The church in Smyrna suffered persecution for far more than 10 days. But I think we can take that number and we can use it to encourage ourselves. There was a definite end to it. It wasn't indefinite. It wasn't going to carry on forever. It was short, short in the scheme of eternity. I think that's encouraging. And then the next phrase, I will give you life as your victor's crown. They were already alive, the people that were hearing this message. They were alive. They weren't dead yet. What life can Christ give them? It's an eternal life. A victor's crown was often a laurel wreath or some sort of um, uh, a, a garland that was worn on the head for those who had won athletic competitions. But also the city of Smyrna was encompassed by hills and buildings that was often known as the garland or the wreath or the crown of Smyrna. It was beautiful. But Christ is drawing their attention away from temporary things that will wither and die or eventually be knocked down to something that's far more eternal, life with him. It is Jesus alone who has the power to give us back our lives when we lose them, our eternal life. The two points, though, that I really want us to take away 
today are also found in these verses. I don't know if you noticed, but when we read through those verses, there were two commands. One was a positive and one was a negative, but two commands. They were, do not be afraid and be faithful. So those are two commands. Now we might think be faithful, that's, I get that one. Do not be afraid. If I asked you what makes you truly afraid, really in your deepest, darkest moments when you're in bed alone at night or if you're being very vulnerable and authentic and telling us the real truth, what makes you really, really afraid? Is it poverty, homelessness, loss of reputation or social standing? Would it be being unloved, rejected, single, single forever, never to find a partner, alone or abandoned? Would it be a sense of failure that your life didn't amount to much, a meaningless life? Would that scare you witless? Most of us would have death on there somewhere. So how can Jesus possibly command us, do not, it's very emphatic, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. This seems impossible. We think of fear as totally outside of our control. If you're walking in the bush and you see a snake on the path, you don't choose to be afraid. You just are. It's self-protective and involuntary. But it's based on the knowledge that the snake can hurt you. If you were walking through the bush and you saw a fork on the path, you might get a surprise. That's a very strange place for a fork to be. But you wouldn't necessarily experience fear because it's based on the knowledge that a fork can't hurt you. Jesus is pointing us to the fact that we don't need to be self-protective when it comes to facing death. We don't need to be afraid of death because death can't hurt us. Death is a transition from this life where we know Jesus partially to a life of knowing him fully, even as we are known. Polycarp, at the point of his death, paraphrased Jesus' words from Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 10. He challenged the executioner to think of what comes after death. Now, this is my version. A polycarp's version is much longer, but it was recorded. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell, where you will experience the second death. This second death is a way of describing what happens after judgment, when those who have rebelled against God will be sent to hell forever. That is what we are to fear. Paul was able to write in Philippians 1 that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is through the first death that we will experience the victory of our faith. It's how Jesus won and it's how we will win too. Paul also goes on to write in Philippians 1, this is verses 28 to 29. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted, and another way of saying granted, other translations use gifted or endowed. This is a, this is a generous gift from God to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. How can we see suffering as something that we have been granted, a privilege, a gift, something that we do for Christ? That's going to take a big mental shift. 
A spirit-filled life, a spirit-controlled life, a spirit-led life is one where peace, contentment, love, joy, kindness are constantly growing. We can't deal with fear on our own. This is something that God, by his spirit, will need to do in us. He will replace our fear with love. But it is us who needs to do the asking, the trusting, the abiding. This is discipleship, one-on-one people. We know that others have done it. So I'm going to choose to believe that God can do it in me if it's needed. So the second thing I want to jump to is the be faithful. So this is the positive, be faithful. I seriously think that faithfulness is one of the very underrated fruits of the Spirit. But along with our lack of fear, it will be a very strong witness to Christ and our faith. It, faithfulness is so countercultural. It was then and it is now. Back then, you could switch allegiance between gods at the drop of a hat or have multi-gods. There was no such thing as allegiance to one God, to one king, to one Lord, unless it was Caesar. But Christ is asking for our allegiance, for us to be faithful, to be truthful people, to be people of integrity, to say what we mean, to keep our word even if it costs us. We have a very recent worldview of suffering, a Western worldview. But for most of history, and including scripture, we're pointed to something else. We tend to think that if we're suffering, it means we've done something wrong. We're outside of God's will. We're not experiencing his favor. That's not how the church has seen suffering up until very recently. Second Timothy chapter 4 says that if you call yourself a Christian, you are to expect suffering and persecution. Suffering for one's faith was to be expected. What do we have to do in that? We have a choice. God will choose, use our choice to be faithful, to, um, to grow us into the image of Christ. It may be the very point or the very thing that shapes us most into Jesus' image. might have the most profound effect. Ten days wasn't literal, but it's limited. We can hold on for ten days. We can put up with being poor. We can put up with being slandered and not need to defend our reputation. Or with being disliked or hated. Laughed at. We can choose to love those who persecute us and bless them. We can serve those who mistreat us. We can forgive them when we know it's temporary. We can put it back into perspective. And I find this such a helpful framework. What I don't think I can endure for a long time, I'm pretty sure I can put up with for a short time. He who is faithful will do it. He will not leave me or you. He will not forsake me or you. He who began the good work in us will carry it on to completion. Nothing can separate us from Christ. The encouragement here is that faithfulness, keeping our word, being truthful, not compromising, even if it means death, will not end in defeat, rather in victory. Just as it is the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slain sits on the throne. Those just do not seem to line up. Those images don't seem to line up. That's how he describes himself. The lamb who is slain sits on the throne. Victory through death. And we're back where we started. The call to be devoted Christ-like followers, regardless of what the world is doing. Being willing to stand up for Jesus wherever we find evil opposing him. Opposition to Jesus can come in our political sphere, can come in our cultural sphere. Sometimes we will find it in our churches. Sometimes we will find it in others. Sometimes we'll find it in ourselves. 
devoted disciples of Jesus are willing to deal with it. Calling it out, confronting it. Last week, Steve showed us that Jesus was calling for us to renew our love, to renew our infatuation with Jesus who calls us. But I think as, as we love more and we know more of how much we are loved, that we will fear less. Loving him more than our wealth, more than our reputation, or even life itself is the solution. We are very unlikely to face martyrdom, but we will all deal with our own mortality. We will see the news and hear of earthquakes, famines, floods, landslides, plagues, wars, viruses. Not fearing death seems impossible, but all things are possible with God. Can I get the worship team back up, please? The very fact that we're sitting here today and that we are able to have a relationship with Jesus with no mediator between us is a miracle. We can come straight to the throne of God. We can speak to him. We know that he hears our prayers. We are forgiven when we ask. That's a miracle. I believe that Jesus can do this miracle in us too. We don't fight with swords or spears. We don't fight with intimidation, exclusion, economic sanctions, or wealth or power. Our enemy isn't flesh and blood. Death isn't defeat. We fight like Jesus. We fight in his strength. We fight with his spirit. How do we do that? On our knees, in total dependence on him because he's the only one who can do it. I believe that a lack of fear, being fearless, will drive our faithfulness because we don't have anything, anything at all eternal to lose. How mind-boggling is that? We have nothing to lose that really counts forever, but we have everything to gain. We have life eternal, life of the one who created us, life of the one who loves us beyond all measure. Love wins. We know the end of the story. Jumping back to the football, I'm not a big footy fan, but I was on my edge of my seat right up until the last minute. Which way was it going to go? Nobody knew. Could have gone either way. We don't need to live with that angst. We know the end of the story. Love wins. Jesus has already won. But I want my life and I want our lives to be fearless and faithful, to be witnesses of the truth that Jesus is Lord. I called this message, Dear Smyrna, Hold on, love Jesus. It could just as easily have been called, Dear Bendigo, hold on, love Jesus. What about, Dear Trina, hold on, love Jesus. I know it's written, Dear Donna, hold on, love Jesus. He's in it with us, he knows. We will all have things that we're afraid of. We will all have areas of our lives where we need to be faithful. What does that look like for you today? Have you got a fear or an underlying anxiety that just sits there in the back of your mind all the time? Is there an area of life where you know that you've been called to be faithful but you're shrinking back from? Let's fight together by praying together. Let's bring those fears and those areas of struggle to the one who knows what our battles are, who loves us more than we can imagine. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God.
thank you for the faithful witness of the church at Smyrna. Thank you for Polycarp. Thank you for the people who've given their lives throughout history to speak your truth and not shirk from it. Help us to love you more than anything else, even life itself. Give us eyes to see people the way you do, to love them the way you do, Jesus. We bring our very real fears to you and we lay them at your feet, confident that you have the victory over it all. You know us and you know what we struggle with. Thank you for those times where we need to be patient, loving, kind or generous. Make us faithful, Lord. Make us faithful witnesses, people who live without fear, confidently declaring you as Lord. Jesus, you alone are worthy of worship. The first and the last, the lamb who was slain but is now alive. You alone hold the keys to death and Hades. You alone can save. We praise you, Jesus. We worship you, Father God. There is no other. It is in your mighty and precious name we pray today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.